the Church of Jesus Christ had been founded today in the 21st century, rather than the 1st century, then I'm pretty sure that the New Testament part of our Bible would have been a lot shorter than it is. We probably wouldn't have had the 13 letters included in the New Testament which Paul, this apostle or special messenger of Jesus Christ, uh, wrote to churches scattered around the Roman Empire. Either Paul wouldn't have written them at all, or he'd have probably got on his mobile phone and spoken to the Christians in these places. Or if he had written them, he'd have probably sent them by email. And they'd have been long consigned to the recycle box and permanently deleted. However, in God's providence, and it is providence, not accidents, the Church of Jesus Christ was established in the first century. A time when the main means of communication was by letter. And again, as in God's providence, the letters that Paul wrote have been preserved down these centuries and they're actually far, far better attested from numerous manuscripts than any other documents from this period. And among these letters is this little letter that we've been looking at this year that Paul wrote to the Christians in the Greek city of Philippi. We've been studying it under a title taken from chapter 2, verse 15, that Richard has already referred to, the title, Shining Like Stars. And if you've been with us in this series, and if you haven't, you can get the tapes of the series, or you can download them from the internet. Uh, We've learnt a lot about Paul. Uh, We've deduced a lot about these people that he wrote to all these years ago. Philippians is probably the most intimate letter that Paul ever wrote that we have preserved for us. But today, as we come to the conclusion of the letter, it's significant that Paul's final focus should be on God the Father and his final words on God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the title of this 24th and final message in our series is appropriately To God Be the Glory. So look with me this morning, will you, at these final four verses. You'll find them in Philippians 4, verses 20 to 23. And if you've got a Bible, it will help to turn to that. It's on page 1181. If you don't have a Bible, just nudge someone, turn around, try and get one from somewhere. Uh, There are Bibles, there's a whole pile down there and other places if people need them. Anyone not got a Bible who'd like one? Just stick your hand up because there are plenty around us. Good. If you write letters, which many people don't today, how do you end your letters? I was at school at a time when you were taught the formal and proper way to write letters. Maybe you still are in school today, I've just not checked this out, but... I suspect probably not. You're more interested in how to send emails. Um, I was told that you conclude your letter by writing yours sincerely, or before that it was yours faithfully, wasn't it? Just as a test, I looked at my um, out my in-tray on my desk, which is getting bigger by the day, and sort of scanned the letters I'd received recently. And there's a whole variety now of ways of which people conclude their letters. Regards, these are the ones in 
if you accept one of these, I don't, I'm not going to give you a name, alright? Um, regards, best wishes, love, or simply, yours. If the letters are from Christians, there's often an addition. Yours sincerely in Jesus. Yours in Him. Yours in the Lord. Christian love. However, although letter writing may be a dying art in the 21st century, it was a very practiced art in the 1st century when Paul wrote his letters. Especially, there was a formula of how you started your letters, which we looked at closely in our first study way back in January, and there's a formal way in which you end your letters. And that's what we're going to consider today. When Paul wrote this originally, Paul didn't write Philippians. Now, before you think I'm a heretic, I'll explain what I mean. Paul almost certainly dictated his letter to a scribe who wrote it down. But the custom was that as you got to the last paragraph, the last bit, the greetings or whatever, you took the quill in your own hand, the stylus, whatever they used, and you wrote it personally in your own handwriting and usually added your signature. Now, there's a reason for this because it authenticated that it really was from you. We know from at least one of Paul's other letters to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians uh, 2 verse 2, that Paul writes to them about people who were writing letters purporting to have come in my name. There were forgeries circulating around, claiming to be from Paul, writing all sorts of things that were contrary to the Christian faith. Now, as you look at this in front of you, it's not absolutely clear where the last bit begins. Does it begin at verse 20? Or is 20 the conclusion of the previous bit, in which Paul thanks the Philippians for the gifts that they sent to him? That's the way our New International Version lays it out. You'll see thanks for their gifts, verses 10 to 20, and then final greetings, verses 21 to 23. However, remember that when, Paul, when this was written, there were no verse numbers, there were no chapters. The paragraph headings and all these things have been added by translators over the years to help us with ease of reference so that I can say to you, turn to chapter 4, verse 21, and you know where you're looking. Otherwise, it would be more complicated towards the end, the last three lines or whatever. It doesn't really matter because in many ways, if you look at verse 20, it acts as a kind of bridge between what's gone before in the previous section and what finally lies ahead of us, these last few verses. And it begins in verse 20 with this wonderful verse, To God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is called a doxology. Maybe you've been to church, people have talked about doxologies. What's a doxology? It's an ascription of praise to God. If you're interested in this, it's really a bit of trivial information. The reason why it's called a doxology is because the Greek word for glory is doxa. And so there's a, weak, there's a word glory in the middle of this. To God, our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Now, the word glory is a word which tries to define the indefinable. It's a word that describes something about God that is unique to God. really means something like even heaviness, brightness, radiance of God's presence, that God lives in glory, that he's a God of glory. And so the appropriate response to God, who is a God of glory, is to acknowledge that. Here's just one example among 
dozens in the Old Testament. Psalm 29 verse 2, the proper response. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Now to ascribe glory to God then is not to give something to God, you know, we'll give him some glory because he doesn't have enough. It be ridiculous. It's simply to do what is right and proper for human beings. To acknowledge with gratitude and praise who God is insofar as we can grasp who he is, which is beyond our understanding, ultimately. But for Paul and every Christian, there is an even more personal response. If you look back to verse 19, if you were here last week, it concludes with that wonderful promise. Paul says, And my God will meet all your needs according to literally his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. But now he comes to verse 20 and the one he calls my God is now our God and Father. See, it's not only personal, it is corporate. So that when we come together as we've tried to do already this morning and as we'll do this evening in the service and I hope you'll come along this evening for the praise night it's an appropriate thing to sing praise to God and you'll discover something interesting. Some of the songs we sing are very personal. My Jesus, my Saviour, Lord there is none like you. But others are corporate songs where together we worship God because I don't own Jesus. Praise God he's my Saviour and Lord and my God is my Father, but He is also our God, our Lord, our Saviour. And that's something we share together. One writer comments, Peter O'Brien, in his commentary, God is to be praised, not only for His working in and through the Philippians to meet Paul's material needs, but also because of the assurance that God will meet all their needs, material and spiritual, now and in eternity. Now, no wonder then, at the end of this, he concludes, notice, Charlotte Chapel, and I've been here 13 years and I still can't get this through to people and people still don't do it. He concludes not with a mumble, but a resounding, Amen! Thank you, very nice. Good, we're getting there, yes. Good, good. Now, Amen is a Hebrew word. It means to stand firm, to be established. In other words, it's a word of absolute certainty because it's based on who God is. Now here's Paul, think about it for a moment. He's in prison. He's awaiting trial before Caesar on a capital charge. There's a very real possibility that he'll be found guilty, the thumb will go down and his head will be locked off. Writing from prison, from these circumstances, he wants to conclude his letter by saying, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Very good, they're getting better. I wonder, just to pause a moment, what are your circumstances today? None of you are in prison because you're here. You may be in a prison of your own circumstance. You may be in great difficulty. Your relationships may be struggling. You may be financially in need. You may be wrestling with huge issues. Who knows behind the facade? And you find it difficult to sing to God with the glory great things he has done. God of glory, we exalt your name. Maybe you didn't feel like that. Maybe you didn't sing at all. 
Maybe you just sang the words, but you thought, this is light years from where I'm at. Listen, no matter where you are, what your circumstances are this morning, if you are a Christian, if you are in relationship with Jesus Christ, you can and should always be able to say, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Easy to say, hard to do. Another writer, Gordon Fee, comments, true theology is expressed in doxology. And doxology is always the proper response to God. So then, what does Paul add by way of conclusion when we get to verses 21, 22 and 23? Now, superficially, it looks like a conventional ending to a letter written in Greek in the original at the end of the first century. But there are some differences in the language. When you wrote letters in Greek at the end of the first century, because we've got all sorts of copies of people's letters, which are very fun and interesting if you read them. In English, of course, you get translations of them. Um, You normally always finish with two words. The two words were, farewell, good luck. Paul doesn't say farewell and good luck. Instead, he focuses on two other words, which give two more reasons to praise God and give him glory. And they're really easy to remember because they begin with the same two letters in English. Paul didn't intend that because he wrote in Greek. You knew that, yes. Okay, what are the two words? Greetings, which focuses on the new relationship which Christians have with one another. And the word that Robert spoke to the children about, grace, which focuses on our relationship with God. So, let's just simply, as we conclude this morning and this series, focus on these two words and what lies behind them, and then at the end, we'll give God the glory. No matter what our circumstances may be. So, first of all, greetings. Focus here is on a new relationship with other people. If you've got your Bible open, just turn back to um, the first verse that we looked at all those months ago. It seems a long time ago, doesn't it? Um, In chapter 1, verse 1. Just over the page, and Paul begins by writing, To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. And now he concludes by greeting all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, if you weren't here in the opening study, or you've probably forgotten, it's worth saying again, that the New Testament never uses the word singular, saint. It never talks about Saint Paul, Saint Peter, Saint John. The word is always plural, saints. And it refers not to some special class of Christians who have long since departed the scene and who are regarded as being worthy of called saints. It refers to all Christians who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have put their faith and trust in Him, who have come into God's family. We refer to them the saints on earth and those who have died are the saints in glory. The word saint means holy, H-O-L-Y, and so belonging to God, set apart for God's service, so that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you become a saint in Christ Jesus, by virtue only of your relationship with Jesus. Now, let me repeat the illustration, because I can't think of a better one, that I used in the opening of this series in the first study. 
Supposing there is an incredibly wealthy man, a multimillionaire. Mr. A, we'll call him. This is a fictitious story, by the way. Right? And there is an extremely destitute young woman, poor as a church mouse, and her name is Miss B. Supposing that Mr. A meets Miss B and falls in love with her and woos her and asks her to marry him. And at the wedding service he says, in front of everybody, all that I am I give to you and all that I have I share with you. If you've been married you may well have said those words. Now sometime later you're with a friend and over the road you see someone and you say to your friend, oh look who's over the road, there's poor Miss B. But your friend says, uh-uh, no, no. She's now rich Mrs. A. She is now extremely wealthy. Why? Because of her union with Mr. A. Now, it's a flawed illustration. Don't push the points too hard, all right? But not in one point. To those of us, maybe especially poor women, who say that such things don't happen today, here is something far more astounding that a holy God should love sinful people so much that he sent his Son into the world to pay the ultimate price to make them holy, to make them saints in union with his Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? But notice that although you become a saint individually, when you put your personal faith in Jesus, as soon as you do that, maybe you're not a Christian this morning, maybe in God's grace, that we pray in the vestry beforehand, the elders, we always pray that God will speak to people and for any here who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, who aren't in Christ, that you'll put your faith in Christ. Now let's suppose in God's grace, wonderful this morning, at the end of the service you think, I wish I was part of that. And you turn from your sin and you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You become a saint in Christ. You know what happens? Something else wonderful happens suddenly you discover that you've got countless thousands and thousands of people who share that same experience who are also saints in Christ Jesus. And they and we, if we put our faith in Jesus, can address God as our God and Father. It becomes a personal and intimate relationship that you share with other people. Maybe you're not a Christian and you think, I can't get this business about people singing all these songs and looking so happy and it's also, it's, it's kind of weird to me, you know, what are they about? Well, as we say in my home county in Derbyshire, it's better felt than felt that it's a personal experience. The warmth of God's love reaches into your heart and suddenly when you want to meet with fellow Christians, you say, oh, I was doing something else this evening, but oh, it's a praise night, I'll be there. I just love praising God with fellow Christians. Isn't that wonderful? We're all members of the same family. So Paul describes those with him in prison. Look at his greetings. He says, the brothers who are with me send greetings. We are all saints, but we are also all brothers in Christ. Now this is nothing to do with gender. It's not restricted to men only. Paul writes to Christians in Roman province of Galatia, Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul sends greetings, look, 
to all the saints in Philippi from all the saints in Rome. And the saints in Rome aren't restricted to this little band who were in prison with Paul or looking after Paul, maybe Timothy and perhaps Luke who wrote Luke and Acts. He may have been there, one or two more. But he adds something very interesting. Notice what he says. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings. Never met them, but they send them Christian greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Now, this doesn't mean members of Caesar's family. It refers to those people, slave and free, who were part of the huge administration and civil service that kept the wheels of government moving in Rome, where Paul wrote this letter from, almost certainly. And among them, Paul says, there are saints. Now, why does he particularly mention this? Well, you see, we've seen that Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a little piece of Rome in Greece. An outpost of Rome. And within this outpost of Rome that prided itself on belonging to Rome and all the privileges that went with it, with this little beleaguered group of people who had put their faith in Jesus Christ, who Paul writes this letter to, the Philippian Christians in that city. Now Paul's writing to encourage them. He says, I'm sending you greetings from all the saints in Rome, even those among Caesar's household, especially those at the very heart of the empire. The good news of Jesus Christ is penetrating right into the heart of the administration, the civil service in Rome. And Paul is writing to encourage them. Gordon Fee writes again, Paul has either found or made disciples of the Lord Jesus among the members of the imperial household who are thus on the Philippian side in the struggle against those who proclaim that Caesar is Lord. No, they confess that Jesus is Lord. And so Paul sends greetings. He's encouraging them. That there are Christians all over the world in every strata of society, even at the heart of the empire, who've put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of these people have never met one another, but they share a bond that goes deeper than human relationships. A bond of true love and unity. A Scottish pastor in his commentary, Sinclair Ferguson, writes beautifully. He writes, Blood is thicker than water, goes the saying. It is all the more so when the blood which binds us together is the precious blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18-19. Wonderful thought, isn't it? That unity that we have in Christ. We experienced a little bit of that this past week. Most of you know, if you were here last week, we suddenly and unexpectedly had 11 Indian pastors and Bible ladies turn up from a conference in Birmingham seeking fellowship and hospitality. I've worked and lived in India, as most of you know, several years, and I knew what they wanted, that they expected. Not, not, not to demand, but well, you're Christians, you know, Heard you Baptist in any moment, just turn them on the door. And some of you very kindly gave them accommodation. Others took them out and everything. Now, their language is very different. Their culture is, even their Christian culture is very different. Uh, thankfully, I was trying to interpret some of the things they did and said to those who shared with them. But underlying that, there is a unity in Christ. If you turned up in their, little, their church, I was going to say a little church, it's bigger than Charlotte Chapel, one of the pastors in Hyderabad, in, in central India, in Andhra Pradesh. If you turned up, the same thing would happen to you. They'd take you home, they'd give you food, they'd vacate their rooms to share with you. We share together in a unity that is deeper than just human bonds and ties. 
And Christians are found scattered throughout the world in every strata of society, in every nation of the world. The simply wonderful thing that God is doing, that God is working in all these places, the most remote places. I think of a, a couple, I think they've left now, uh, who came to our international fellowship. I think, looking at Mark down here, will back up my story. And they wanted to adopt a child from Colombia in South America. Now, because of all the drug problems, uh, they were sent to a little island off the coast where the legal proceedings were carried through. And I think they said to Mark, didn't they, have, you, have we got anybody from international fellowship who ever came from that island? And I think Mark said, well, there was one guy who came to our international fellowship. He wasn't a Christian, but he used to come along, and here's his name. And while they were over there, and a few hours to spare, they looked it in the phone book and saw this name, and they rang him up and they said, did you used to come to Charlotte Chapel did you, when you lived in it, studying in Edinburgh? Yes, he said, and I'm now a Christian and a pastor of a church here. Isn't that amazing? God works in these ways. Friends, you've got enormous opportunities. The world comes to Edinburgh. Come and support our international fellowship. There's great opportunity, some of you here this morning, from all parts of the world. And it's just such a wonderful thing. So the appropriate response is always to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now that's not the only reason to praise God. There's a second one. Another word and reason, and Robert already talked about it very well to the children. Grace and new relationship with God. Instead of the usual Greek good luck, Paul concludes his letter with a word with a much stronger and certain assurance about the future. The word grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Peter O'Brien comments again, the phrase describes the grace of the Lord Jesus, not a character or quality of Jesus, but something he shows and does. Another writer speaks often at Keswick, Alec Matea puts it more succinctly. Grace is Jesus being gracious. The phrase, isn't it? Grace is Jesus being gracious. And grace is God's undeserved favour that he's shown to us in his son Jesus, something which we experience personally through Jesus. So Paul reminds the Christians in Corinth in that beautiful verse, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, he says to them, for you know, experience, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Christ voluntarily impoverished himself. It's the focus of that great hymn we looked at in chapter 2 of Philippians. His incarnation, his condescension, his humiliation, his crucifixion, even death on a cross, was so that we might become rich. We enjoy the riches of God's grace. And we experience that when we first become Christians. We come to the cross of Christ. Nothing, him writer says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. We are saved by grace. Again, another of his letters, Christian in Ephesus, Paul writes, to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it's by grace you've been saved, through faith. This is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. We are saved by grace. Have you ever come there, first time, to the foot of the cross? As Robert said, it's not something we can do for ourselves, it's something God does for us in Christ. When we come to the cross, we are saved by grace. But grace is not something like one of these injections where you get a one-off shot and it inoculates you for life. Yeah, you are secure, as we'll see in a moment, but you constantly need to experience God's grace day by day. So we're also sustained by grace. 
Paul begins the letter by saying, Grace and peace to you from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 1-2. And now he concludes by saying, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. The word spirit is kind of shorthand for the real person, the real you. Some churches use it as a response, don't they? The Lord be with you, says the leader, and the people say, and also with your spirit. And each one of us needs God's grace day by day. Why? Because we fall so easily. Maybe you came to the foot of the cross many, many years ago. And maybe you've fallen away. And you need this morning to come back, and you need God's grace. Paul knows this is the most essential thing these Christians in Philippi need, the grace of the Lord Jesus. Or maybe like the Philippians, the problem we saw that they had, you can become proud and think, well, I've been a Christian for quite a long time now and I'm certainly higher up in the pecking order in Charlotte Chapel than so-and-so who's just become a Christian. Who do they think they are? We're all on the same level ground at the foot of the cross. The only reason I stand in this pulpit is you couldn't see me if I stood down there. Not six foot above contradiction. You and I need God's grace day by day to sustain us. So easily we fall, so easily we become proud. That's perhaps why Paul doesn't in this letter, very unusually, doesn't name anybody personally. Maybe he just wants to emphasise grace to all the saints, whoever you are. You see, grace, grace is a great leveller, God's grace. It's a great leveller because we're all on the same basis. There is no status. We just had elections in Charlotte Chapel. People who are appointed as elders, we're appointing deacons, pastor group leaders, fellowship group leaders. Listen, they're functional roles. It's not, you know, you've got this hierarchy, the senior pastors up there and then the rest of the pastoral team and then the elders and the deacons and, you know, and stewards and then, the, you know, that's ridiculous. We're all one in Christ Jesus, we're all level at the foot of the cross. We all need God's grace, we all came in the same way, we all remain in the same way. We're saved by grace, we're sustained by grace, and finally, we're secured by grace, because he finishes again with the same word. Amen. It reminds us that we're secured by grace. We'll sing in a moment John Newton's great hymn, It is grace that brought me safe as far, and grace will lead me home. And I just wonder this morning, as we come to the end of this series, whether you can sing that from your own experience. You feel a bit embarrassed singing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Hang on a minute, I'm not that good, but I'm not a wretch. Well, it depends how you look at it. Depends what you're comparing it with. Oh, you may not be a wretch compared to the person sitting next to you or somebody else you know but compared with who God is in all his glory, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. See, grace is only available, this kind of grace is only available through the Lord Jesus Christ. So he writes again, to miss this central focus on Christ would be to miss the letter altogether, to miss the heart of Paul's theology. Paul gives him his full title. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus. Saviour, anointed, appointed one. Now if you were a Roman, certainly of any status, if you'd read this, you would have laughed. The Lord Jesus Christ? You mean that 
pretended Messiah who was crucified. There is only one Lord. Caesar is Lord. The Caesar at this time was Nero. Probably in two or three years from when this was written, Rome was destroyed by fire and Nero, probably by Nero himself, and Nero targeted the Christians as scapegoats and they were murdered ruthlessly, persecuted. Jesus is Lord. Listen, how many people are meeting in Edinburgh today and praising the name of Nero? How many people are meeting in Edinburgh today and praising the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? That empire and king has long since gone, faded into the sands of time. But the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ grows and expands until that day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. That day in the book of Revelation where the hosts of heaven sing, the kingdoms of the world, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. So what is the only response that we should make? as we conclude. To our God and Father, be glory forever 